Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord this morning and uh, sense the presence of the Lord with us already. Um, we asked Pam to read uh, Isaiah 55. I'm not preaching on that text this morning, but um, because it's really unsurpassed, I think, in its beauty as a divine promise uh, for God's people um, and its offer of divine grace, it's a really sincere, heartfelt call from God to uh, his people, the, those especially that are needy and broken and suffering and you know, confused and wounded, to come um, five times in the opening verses uh, of that chapter, the Lord calls to us to come, to come, to come, to come. Um, he pleads, and really ple- pleasing, you know, pleading to us. Or as the psalmist puts it, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed be those who take refuge in him. So it struck me just as a kind of perfect background text for this moment for the life of the Church of Evergreen. I do want to call attention briefly to verse 6 in Isaiah 55 where um, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. And a parallel verse in Jeremiah uh, 29, 13, You shall seek the Lord and you shall find him when you search for him with all your heart. Those are words of great promise uh, from God to us. Uh, when pain and difficulties and unusual circumstances come upon us. And I think that's been true for us these past weeks, uh, that the Spirit has been with us in special ways. What I want to talk about this morning, though, is that that very simply uh, familiar text. Um, briefly comment on two from uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews and the book of Matthew, um, texts that will be familiar to us. But I think... Um, uh, they really represent why um, the Lord can be with us, you know, day in and day out, in good times and bad. I chose these texts because um, sometimes, you know, familiar texts can seem, oh, yeah, kind of abstract, far in the distance. But I think when we plug them into the current moment, it makes them come alive in a kind of timely and fresh way that they wouldn't otherwise if we're just kind of reading them as something to read, to get inspiration from. So I thought I'd just talk for a few minutes about Hebrews um, in chapter 4, a few verses there, and in Matthew chapter 7. So I'm going to read briefly um, from Hebrews 4, and we'll see what we can uh, do here this morning. I do sense a, a strong presence of the Lord here this morning, so I hope that um, you'll enter into that as well as we go on here. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God, from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, some translations say boldly, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the argument up to that point in Hebrews is pretty complicated, and I'm not going to go into it. It's very complex. I don't understand it all, but those verses are the practical result of the complicated argument the writer of Hebrews is making in, the, in those early chapters. First of all, in verses uh, 12, 11, and, I'm sorry, 12 and 13, we're being exhorted uh, to watch what's going on in our hearts. That's an important verse um, to me. I've been studying about the human heart for a while because of some things I'm working on unrelated to today. But why the heart? Why the heart? Why are we called to watch our hearts? Well, not just because God searches our hearts, but because the, our heart is uh, often used in, in Scripture as a metaphor for the central identity, our central identity for who we are, uh, for that that thing, if you will, out of which all the issues of life flow. You know, um, Proverbs, uh, you know, 4.23, Matthew 12.34. I like the way the Christian philosopher Roy Clouser, he's a friend of mine, puts it in one of his books. The heart, he writes, and I'm quoting, is the center of thought, belief, knowledge, will, and feeling. It is thus the root source of all the evil and the good that a person thinks or does. That's the metaphor in Scripture often for our our central identity. And so the Scripture there in those two verses is telling us we're part of that openness before God. Nothing in all creation is hidden, not any corner of the human heart. For the Word of God is the discerner of our heart. And I think, personally, I know for me, it's especially important for me to watch my heart when bad things happen. Um, Because sometimes we can you know, get off into the works of the flesh instead of moving in the, in the fruit of the Spirit. And then in verse 14 and 15, we have Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest who has passed into the heavens. He's entered the heavenly sanctuary of God's intimate and holy presence. But here's the thing, people. We're not talking about some abstract concept here or some out-of-the-world, super-duper alien being <laughs> who's sort of so far distant from us mere mortals that he can't even relate to us. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who has gone into God's sanctuary, into his holy presence in complete solidarity with our fragile humanness, our human limitations, our pain, our suffering, our brokenness. In every respect, verse 15, even when life seems to be coming off the rails, Jesus Christ is with us. He's shared our humanity, even to the point of experiencing genuine human temptations or testings to sin, as some translations put it. And yet Jesus never fell prey to sin. He did not yield to sin. He was without sin. I ran across an old expositor from the 1890s uh, who wrote this about that, and I love this quote, and I'm quoting again. Only one who has not yielded to sin can know the fullest degree of the strength of temptation. For he who yields, sorry, for he who sins yields to temptation. He yields before it has reached the greatest possible force. He who falls yields before the last strain. End of quote. 
But Jesus never yielded. He was without sin. So verse 16, the key verse. Therefore, therefore, when you see a therefore, you've got to look to see what it's there for, right? Because in every respect, Jesus shared our humanity but did not yield to sin. And I quote, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. As I was looking into this, I realized this is the writer of Hebrews' way of describing what Jeremiah and Isaiah were on about when they say, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. All these thoughts here, and I just want to share briefly a few thoughts from some words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then though you are evil, and that's about moral evil and ethical decisions and moral decisions we make in the wrong direction. <laughs> if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This verse is about this passage is about going to God in all things. And I'll come back to verse 7 in just a minute, but um, humbly and prayerfully seeking God as a kind of resource with a capital R, uh, far beyond you know our own limitations, kind of like going to the throne of grace, as Hebrews says. Um, excuse me. But... Um, uh, Okay, so I'm looking at my notes. They're all over the map this morning. Um, but the thing is that in those early chapters of, of Ma- or the early verses of Matthew, uh, it's not talking about anything goes when he says, judge not. It's not about anything goes, like you can just do anything you want and there's not to be any discernment or anything like that. It's not what that's talking about. We know from the rest of Scripture that um, you know, we're called to have a humble, discerning heart about when when sin goes on and to take care of that in a humble and a discerning way. Our leadership is in particularly called to do that. Um, so it's not talking about that. It's talking about, uh, you know, watching the heart and doing things that are, um, you know, whoa, Lord, I mean, maybe I'm getting caught up in the works of the flesh here rather than into the uh, into the spirit of the Lord and producing the fruit of the Spirit during, during this time. So I think the Lord's been visiting us 
you know, uh, with his mercy and grace at this time. And, you know, that asking and receiving is what's going on. We've been going through something. We're asking the Lord to bless us, to be with us, to help us, to show us the way. His spirit has been with us in a special way uh, when things have been going on. I I see it really, and this is kind of the point of what I want to say this morning based on these scriptures is um, I see it personally as a visitation from the Lord, as as kind of a special visitation. Um, There's other ways to understand it. You may have different ways to understand it, and no one way is right or wrong, I don't think. Uh, There's many ways where a many-faceted body uh, and different kinds of people see different things different ways. Um, this is the way I see it, and I just thought, hope that this will be helpful. And I want to put it in the context of uh, something you may have heard about. Probably everybody in this room has heard about this. Um, back in February, um, there was this um, move of the Spirit in Asbury College just up the road from us. And uh, suddenly it was like after a couple of weeks in the media everywhere about you know renewal and revival. That's what people were talking about. And um, I've talked to a good pastor friend of mine a lot about this. And, uh, you know, it was interesting conversations and others of you. And uh, but the thing we were talking about, my pastor friend and I, but there's like another visitation of God or a presence of God called a visitation. So we kind of were thinking in terms of revival, renewal, and visitation. In revival, by God's grace, he's putting life into that which is dead, Right? And so, for instance, a, a classic example in Scripture is the four winds of God come and blow upon the dead bones, and you know the, they, they get flesh and they come together and they take on life. That's in Ezekiel chapter 37. That's a revival. And in renewal, it's God like reinvigorating you know, something that's already good in our life, something that's going on in our life, um, some area, you know, bringing freshness to it. Um, supplying the grace necessary for that to occur. So perhaps he's given you a new gift, or maybe he's um, reinvigorating or increasing the effectiveness of one that you already have, or maybe he's rekindling an interest that's been latent in you, or bringing you to repentance, or taking what is already planted like a talent and bringing it forth 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's renewal. Both revival and renewal are God's prerogative, but so is a visitation. Um, it's there's similarities between them, but excuse me. But um, there's some difference as well. A visitation is the Lord making a personal visit. I like how my friend and pastor and minister colleague Mike Osminski puts this. He said, "Think of a someone who's come to your door, knocking. You know, it might be." someone who you haven't seen for a long time, a friend who's come to catch up. Um, It might be uh, your neighbor coming with your dog who happened to be in his yard, and he's bringing it back to you. Uh, You never know what kind of visitation the Lord's going to make. It might be something as odd as uh, hearing the knock on the door or the doorbell ringing, and someone's come there to hand you a summons to appear in court. (laughs) Um, That's always an interesting experience. Um, anyways, think of a visitation as, as you know, the Lord is coming to your door and knocking. 
there's many biblical examples of this. I'll just name a few, and you can ponder them later in your quiet times. So in the Bible, we find Abraham, or Abram as he's called before his name is changed, being visited by God, um, called away from his home, from his country, Tehran, to go out to a land that I will show you. Now imagine this poor guy. He's not even told by God where he's going to. <laughs> Just say, come on, follow me. We're going somewhere. And he leaves and he goes. Boy, what faith there must be there. Just let's go to a foreign land and I'll show you where it is. Don't worry about what it is. You'll know it when you get there. I'll tell it to you. It's Jeremiah being visited by the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 1, the story of his calling. Uh, he wasn't expecting that at all. It's God appearing at the end of the Job narrative, one of my favorites, although I hate to use that word for it. And he's telling everyone, basically, in effect, shut up, everyone. You've all got it all wrong. <laughs> um, you know, uh, let me tell you a thing or two. I'm sovereign. You're not. Here's why. End of story. <laughs> and you got three chapters of questions that nobody can answer. It makes for an interesting reflection. It's King David being visited by overwhelming conviction of his sin, repenting, and get this, begging God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. Psalm 51. A truly frightening experience of a visitation is the visitation uh, rejected. It's found in Luke 19. Just days before his death, Jesus is approaching the city of Jerusalem. For the last time, mind you. He's heartbroken that God's people have completely misread why he has come on this very personal incarnational visit. He's come to offer them saving grace, but they want a political savior, someone to overthrow the government and change the government. Well, they just don't get it. So they're going to reject Jesus and by implication reject saving grace. Of course, Jesus knows this is coming, and so as he's approaching the city, he stops at some point along the way and he cries over it. And that's, in the Greek, that's a really strong, that's not just some like a little tear ran down his cheek or, you know, he's heartbroken and he cries and he's like sobbing. Now you've got to imagine the scene, you know, apparently in Luke, the story is given to us, he's just been fated by all the people on the donkey and they're throwing robes down and wreaths and, Praise the Lord, here comes our Messiah to deliver us from Rome. Well, Jesus is sobbing. Imagine the irony of the scene. If you had only known on this day, he says, even you, the things that make for peace. And here comes the frightening part. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's visitation to you. So the city's lack of recognition of God's visitation in Christ led to the people's rejection of Christ, the Savior. And that led to a great judgment, which, of course, was the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem a few decades later by the Roman emperor, Titus. Jesus had come to save them from their sins. But in wanting a political Savior, they missed the visitation of God, that amazing grace to them. Jesus comes to save us, too. You know, salvation isn't just the one-off thing I did when I got saved in 1976 or whenever you gave your life to the Lord. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. Every day we're being saved. 
there's something going on, even if we don't have sins that we know about it. We're being saved by grace. And we got to be careful not to reject that, you know, both as a gathered church and as individuals, as families, and so on and so forth. We don't want to miss that amazing grace and mercy to us. So Jesus is heartbroken there in that scene. His people's rejection of him become yet another weight, another heavy burden on his shoulders to carry with him to Calvary. Now, Jesus has also carried our sins, our burdens, the burden of our sins on Calvary. We discussed a little bit about this at the two special Wednesday night meetings um, recently, um, saying that, you know, in understanding from Galatians 6, 2, that we're called to imitate Christ's carrying of burdens by we carry one another's burdens, especially during times of, you know, suffering, crisis, we help shoulder people's burdens. It's a special calling from God during those times. It's not so demanding when things are going pretty well and things are kind of seeming kind of normal. And by carrying one another's burdens, here's the, the, the beautiful thing of Galatians 6.2. Paul adds, we are therefore fulfilling the law of Christ. We're fulfilling the law of Christ. So by our humble, yes, imperfect seeking of God and carrying one another's burdens, we're being shaped during this difficult period by a grace-filled, merciful visitation of the Spirit. We ultimately attribute this to the love of God for us, a reality made possible to us by our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. I want to close by saying that this visitation isn't just some magic trick, abracadabra, we're suddenly in a new reality altogether. No, that's not the way it works. We're not in a totally new situation. But instead, get this, we're experiencing the rich presence of the Lord in a way that we haven't in a long time. I know it's hard to hear that, but we are. Are you open to it? Are you open to it to keep going? Be open, my friends, I beg of you. God is with us. God is with us. Therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Boldly, 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 boldly. The rich blessing of having that precious presence of the Lord with us in our sufferings as individuals, as families, as a body to sustain us, to heal us, and to bring hope to our hearts. Here's the thing, and it's huge. This really jumped out at me as I was putting this talk together. Under the old covenant, it's seek the Lord while he may be found. But in Jesus, Matthew 7, 7, ask and you shall receive. Why? Because for Christians in the new covenant, get this, God is already found. God is already found, my friends. He's already found. Just go to him. Ask and you shall receive. The throne of grace is open. That doesn't mean you go there in some, you know, proud, you know, I'm God's great man of the hour, filled with the anointing and power, as we used to joke about up north. But uh, you go there in humility, and you confess to God that you're there because Jesus said we can find grace to help in our time of need.
The access is always there, open to us at the throne of grace. So Jesus said, seek and you shall find, period. That is a precious promise indeed. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, when Jesus, the good shepherd, was led to his death, the sheep were confused and in pain and scattered. and Their hopes were dashed. But hallelujah, after the resurrection, Lord, although they were still in sorrow and confused, wondering, what now, what next? When they gathered together as one body, the power of the Spirit fell upon them, Lord. And they start to change the world around them. Lord, will you fall upon us as a body, as part of your body, as part of your local body, for the works that you, and the ministries that you have called us to do. May you grant it to be so with us, Lord, as we continue to gather as part of your body. Visit us powerfully, we pray, not only to continue in the ministries you have called us to, but to increase their effectiveness. Open our hearts to you, Lord. Grant us understanding of our hearts, our central identities, are to be more and more you as the time goes by. And may we fulfill, may we fulfill that, Lord, by your grace. And we pray all these things for your glory and purposes, thanking you that you're able to do above and beyond what we ask or think or pray. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.